Hi everyone, we'll start in around five minutes. Thank you for coming. And uh, I added the slides on top of the room and the paper is shared in the chat. It should be open source so everyone should be able to access it. Um, feel free to check it out before we start and uh, share the room in case you think some people that you might know also be interested. Thank you so much. Hi Ari, how are you? Hi Katerina, uh, good, I'm doing well. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, nice speaking with you. Um, yeah, I hope you're having a good day. Sure, yeah. So far. Looking forward to today's talk. Uh, we'll start in around three minutes, so we still have a little bit of time. But I, I if you want uh, to check out if the link is working for you, not that you need it, but um, it should be working uh, to access the, the presentation. And I also added the, um, the nature paper in the chat. And I want to also, you have a website. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm sharing also the website here in the chat. So everyone, please check it out. It has really interesting information and then you can check out more publications um, and yeah feel free to raise the hand and come up to the stage um, and we will start shortly in around two minutes so thank you i'm curious uh just a little bit of the the history of this group it's um it's nice to learn about it. How long have you been running it? So um, this with this name is now in February a year, but um, I've been running rooms like this since like COVID times mm -hmm. and like shutdown times. Um, so this this app started uh, during COVID time and um, in the beginning it was invite only. Um, and uh, there were a lot of like, tech people here and then media people and so on, a few scientists. And then people asked me a lot um, in these different rooms about, you know, science questions <laughs> like facts and uh, what's going on in science. And, you know, I would, I would not be able to answer in depth all the different questions so i started <laughs> yeah. inviting people and this is kind of how it started and in the beginning it was kind of weird because i would have to tell people 
okay, I need your cell phone number to in, to send you an invite. I felt kind of weird asking that. Yeah. Uh, but people still, most of the time, did it without even questioning it. There was sometimes like a question, really? Why do you need the cell phone number? I said, yeah, I'm sorry, it's invite only. And then, um, yeah, so I did this kind of independently and then, yeah, then I started creating my own club just doing that because I kind of felt doing this in other clubs where there's kind of sometimes experts, non-experts talking about topics. I felt that wouldn't do justice to the actual scientists. And then also, you know, if people don't know and they are not from the area, they don't know who to believe or trust. So um, I thought it was kind of murky and I, you know, I didn't want to go on like that. So I decided to make a club where really just the people that do the research talk about their own research mm. uh, so that people know when they come here, they can kind of trust the information that it was kind of important for me so yeah that's that's the story basically wonderful yeah i think we can start so uh welcome everyone to science society and a special welcome to you um ari i hope i'm saying your name right yes yes and um so that people get to know you a little bit better I'll um, give like a short um, uh, general information about you. Um, uh, Dr. Ari Benjamin, he uh, went to Williams College to do his bachelor in physics with cum laude. And then uh, he did his master's at Northwestern University in mechanical engineering under the advisor of Simon um, Ketten. And then at the university, then he went on to the University of Pennsylvania um, as a PhD, um, for his PhD in bioengineering uh, under Comrade Cording. And um, he did um, his dissertation was about machine learning at, as a tool and theory for computational neuroscience. And um, now he is a postdoctoral fellow at Cold Spring Harbor Lab with um, Tony Zador. And he is developing new statistical analysis to link gene, gene transcription, brain connectivity, and function. And um, it's really an honor having you here uh, because I think your research field is really interesting you're at the the intersection of biology and technology <laughs> i think which will become more and more uh intertwined and um the question we have the first question we have for you is like how did you discover uh, that you wanted to go into research become a scientist uh, was it something you always wanted to do or was it maybe a class or a book you read uh, that kind of sparked your interest? Thank you. Mm, thank you. Um, I never knew what I wanted to think about in research, but I think if you asked me even as a, a six-year-old uh, what I wanted to be, 
I probably would have told you a scientist at that point. Um, if from I think at the age of six, it would have been a geologist. Uh, maybe for a little while later, like an astronomer. I was very interested in the cosmos and like all the every every strange uh, astrophysical object. Um, I, just the oddity and. Uh, and expansiveness uh, of the universe really, really captured my imagination. Um, so I wanted to study uh, physics, um, which um, I think um, I, I liked the way uh, my mind had to work to do that. And, and it felt like you know, getting at these big questions, but uh, I never thought I wanted to study neuroscience. Uh, or artificial intelligence until uh, much later. I think I was in my mid twenties when I I really learned about computational neuroscience for the first time, um, uh, especially as um, uh, computational neuroscience that talks to and intersects with artificial intelligence and, and uh, deep learning and neural networks. I didn't know it existed, um, so once I heard about them. It, it was really, uh, I put myself uh, on the fast track and I've been uh, thinking about that ever, ever since then. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, I also wanted, you know, to different things during childhood related to science and then neuroscience also came, just came later. Um, so, so that's interesting that you had kind of a similar path and um, yeah, so, um, I'm glad you chose that path because <laughs> I think the work is really interesting and, and we get to talk here now. Um, and then, um, how did you, how did this project come about? Um, you know, was it really hard to, um, get funding or was it something that, you know, that you kind of, um, started based on uh, some previous interesting finding, you know, whatever um, thing uh, you can share there, but I think that's really interesting. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I guess the, this, this project was fun because it meandered a lot. It began with something slightly different. Um, but as we responded to our results and started to think more deeply about how what we're seeing, it, it changed a lot. Um, and I guess in the beginning, like the, the background, like, uh, uh, I guess the intellectual background is this question, um, a big question, um, which is how, um, how similar is, is the human brain and the human minds to, uh, the artificial intelligence systems that we're building today. Um, uh, and this is a massive question that uh, has a range of opinions about and was uh, now in, in the era of uh, chat GPT and generative uh, imaging, uh, generative uh, image construction um, generation. It's it's even more pertinent and relevant. It's a big question. And, and we we're uh, really only tackling uh, a very small thing in the beginning. We, we were curious uh, since the like, vision networks were, were, were big, and, um, like image classification uh, at this time when we were first talking in 2017 or so, um, we wondered to ourselves whether these 
neural networks would see the same sorts of visual illusions that human do, humans do, that we do, that animals do, uh, uh, or at least have responses that would be similar uh, to uh, the sort of apparent errors that we make when confronted with the visual illusion. Um, and that, that was really the opening question. And, and, and if you look at the paper now, you, you, I, I'm not even sure the word illusion makes it into the paper. <laughs> uh, but that at least was the beginning of our curiosity. Uh, and we, we started talking to, um, so we, we being in the beginning, uh, myself and my advisor, Conrad, to uh, someone who is on the same building as, as us, uh, same floor, at University of Pennsylvania, Alan Stocker, who is a psychophysicist. This is like an, er an area of um, the study of, um, like the, the careful study of usually human subjective perception, but also action. This is a really old discipline. Um, the name psychophysics goes back to the 1800s uh, before even neuroscience. That term wasn't introduced until the 19, mid, uh, mid 20th century. Um, and uh, this field of psychophysics uh, has built lots of illusions to illustrate many of its key ideas. Um, so we, we thought, you know, well, okay, if we're going to treat illusions uh, properly, we should, we should be working with, uh, with, with a true psychophysicist and, and a good lab. And that, uh, began the, the collaboration really between our two approaches, us, the sort of deep learning and neuroscience side, and then the lab of Alan Stocker representing human psychophysics. Uh, yeah. Well, that is so interesting. Um, yeah, I, that, you know, that was the main question about illusions and if, you know, tech intelligence basically experiences that too. I think that's, um, it's kind of an exciting work and um yeah the the stage is yours to dive into it we can't wait and uh, for everyone the slides are pinned on top of the room please access them and follow along thank you cool thanks a lot um i'm excited for this format um uh, uh audio only format is is new to me and and uh, freeing in a, in a nice way and i hope to make this a little bit more narrative um and like less visual than I normally would uh, would do, which is really nice. I think slides sort of um, normally suck up everyone's attention. So I'll refer to these slides, uh, slide one, two, three, and so on uh, every now and then, but um, we'll, we'll see if I can spin a narrative uh, that, that moves beyond them. Uh, so, okay, so yeah, I was, as I was just saying, this project began uh, with uh, the idea of, of, you know, might neural networks see these visual illusions? And we started talking to, um, to this, uh, at Alan Stocker in his lab in psychophysics. And, um, I should give some introduction to both of these two sides, like the neural network side and the psychophysics side, but let me start with psychophysics. Um, and that is, uh, slide, slide one. In, in, in some regards. So uh, a, a very typical psychophysics experiment um, is, is to 
detect when or to, to ask uh, a bunch of human uh, subjects who um, so might be invited in to to uh, answer a bunch of questions about what you can see and what you can't see. Um, and so this is one classical result here on, on slide one, um, where people would be shown these uh, these grading patterns, these, these oriented uh, grading or, or Gabor patterns uh, specifically. And uh, these would be rotated slowly. And you would be asked, tell me when you see any difference or you know, do you see a difference between the left and the right image? Now, as we look around in the world, you know, it seems like we can really trust our senses because that's what we have access to. And sometimes we go so far as mistaking our subjective senses for the world itself. Like the, this, um, it, it, it seems, uh, it's, it, the sense is so strong that we see what is really there. But in fact, we make all sorts of errors all the time and they're systema syst systematic, these errors that, me, that we make. Uh, and we're, we're variously good or bad at detecting certain changes. Uh, so for this very simple experiment here, it turns out that if uh, normally on average, you can detect a difference uh, once I've moved this, once I've rotated this screen by about eight degrees or so. Uh, at this for this particular image, it would change depend if you increase the contrast and so on. But uh, as you move the initial orientation, that changes a lot. So uh, near the vertical and the horizontal orientations, we are actually very good, or at least much relatively much better at detecting a change. So uh, on the right, you can see what is the threshold, the number of degrees that I have to change this image for people on average to detect it, um, or this plot was just a single subject. <laughs> and uh, one of the authors was back in that era. The, uh, but uh, for the diagonals, we are much worse at detecting changes. Uh, and that can be uh, almost twice, twice the number of degrees required to be changed needing uh, for detection. Uh, now that's, I think, it's, it's something that's so clear in the data and, and reproducible across people, but something we can't detect ourselves from, uh, from introspection as we look around the world. And I think that's uh, really interesting and, and a theme of psychophysics more broadly. Um, now, still within the domain of classical psychophysics, we can go to slide two, where people began to ask, why would this need to be the, like, why? <laughs> why, why would it be that we can detect certain uh, orientations of lines better than, than others. Uh, and the uh, a key result uh, suggesting a reason why is simply the statistics of the visual world, uh, the natural world. Uh, people quantified in various ways uh, where, like how often when we look around, do we see horizontal lines versus diagonal ones? And it turns out whether you're inside or you're outside, it's stronger inside in, in artificial environments, but even out in, in, in the wilderness, you're much more likely to encounter, if I just query a little part of my visual field, a vertical line than a horizontal line or than, than, a, than a diagonal one. Um, 
so there's there's a strong correspondence between how common something is and how good we are at detecting it. And to make sense of that, uh, this is this fits really nicely with a very mainstream uh, framework within psychophysics. Uh, I'm going to slide three for a little schematic, um, and this just shows a a uh, uh, a, a mental model that much of psychophysics and the sensory neurosciences have um, when explaining what we see, um, which is imagining that as, as information comes from the external world and it makes its way through our, our, our retina and then uh, retina sends information through axons to uh, the thalamus and then the thalamus projects to the visual cortex and, and through each of these stages uh, it's imagined that some information must be lost uh, through noise neurons as they fire um, inevitably have a little noise and it's also uh, a bottleneck a necessary compression of, of of the world out there and so we can ask, okay, given these constraints, what would the optimal system system do? And this is a, a mathematical framework, mathematical question that's precisely the same as what Claude Shannon first asked when talking, when introducing the idea of information. Um, and uh, it, it turns out that under certain types of constraints or certain types of noise, the right thing to do is to have, given these constraints, the sensory system should preferentially represent the things that occur more frequently. Uh, if uh, uh, that, that 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 means that, uh, like, by preferentially represent, maybe you're you're allocating more neurons to representing those more frequent vertical lines, or maybe you're uh, taking steps to decrease the noise, particularly for those types of stimuli. And if that's done, uh, then you'll on average be able to put more information about the world through that noisy or constrained channel. Um, so this principle uh, goes to pulls from information theory mainly, and it's been really successful in psychophysics and in the sensory sciences, uh, neurosciences more broadly. Um, so that's, um, uh, that's uh, what I'd like to introduce from psychophysics in the beginning. Um, and th this paper in the end uh, became, although we originally started from just a simple, like might, you know, might these neural networks, um, and I'll talk more about neural networks in a second, be similar, um, in the end, it became sort of a, a question about what are the principles, what are the frameworks that we could use to explain human perception in the first place? So it became much more about uh, actually like the understanding the human side and not just like, why is there a correspondence maybe between artificial networks and, and these systems? Um, and so um, that's like a, on, on slide four, um, the traditional way in, in psychophysics is to think about optimal, optimal perception using information theory. Um, and uh, where uh, this paper will go, and, and I'll get into this, is, is well, maybe 
different principles can explain this um, effect and, um, and, and it might relate to learning and learning theory. So what are the consequences of being an effective learning system? Uh, and um, I think I should, uh, at this point, talk about neural networks broadly, what I mean. So we can skip to slide six, where there's a, a simple schematic of a neural network. <laughs> and uh, neural networks are interesting as models, excuse me, um, as, as models for neuroscience. They are at once very similar and at once very different than than brains <laughs> and, and neural networks. They are like the neural networks in our brains, uh, neuronal networks sometimes people say to distinguish them. Um, originally you know, introduced as, as models uh, and popularized mostly within um, like cognitive psychology really rather than um, so like high level um, modeling. Um, and, you know, not coming so much from like, how can we describe what single actual neurons do? Because actual neurons in the brain have all these very complicated properties. The neural networks that today are transforming artificial intelligence, you know, start from this abstraction that you just have these nodes and there are millions and millions of these nodes and they're interconnected uh, in multiple layers and uh, information you'll like, put in some pixels from one end, it, information throws, flows through these layers and layers of nodes. Uh, and at the end, uh, through some process that we don't need to understand and really can't, um, that ne neural network might output, uh, let's say the, the probability that that input image was a chair versus that it contained a table. And then uh, to make it be better at this, uh, this network is trained to incrementally um, adjust each of the weights, each of the connections between all of the nodes in the network. Uh, and the, 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 there are many ways in which you could adjust those weights. Um, gradient descent is, is the way, is, is sort of the cornerstone or you know, methods that involve using a gradient. Broadly, but really, gradient descent is the cornerstone of artificial intelligence today. Uh, it's a it's a simple algorithm um, that would be familiar to you know any any engineer, and and and, and you might you know have talked about it in, in a high school um, calculus class, which just says that uh, every time I update this network, I'm going to adjust each of these nodes proportional to uh, to the gradients to the derivative of the, the cost function or the last function, the objective. So maybe the objective is like how frequently I, uh, I uh, classify a chair correctly. And you want that to be 100%. And you can write that as a, as a number, like the percentage being correct. You'll take the gradient of that with respect to any, any node or edge. And uh, that so that that says like you know if I if I slightly if I infinitesimal if I really slightly perturb a weight uh, in a certain direction how much will the cost uh, go down how much will the objective function get better 
um, very slowly. And then you'll do this for all of the weights of the network via some algorithm, but really doesn't matter how. Um, it's mostly just that you are, you, you calculate these, these gradients and then you slightly move all of the weights and you've changed the whole network uh, a little bit for the better, hopefully. <laughs> and um, this, uh, this is, this is really required to get artificial uh, networks to work, but it's very controversial how much uh, this, how much gradient descent is what the brain is doing. Um, nevertheless, uh, it's this, these, the, um, uh, I would say there, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a key principle behind gradient descent. Uh, like in this model system, if we're thinking of this as a model of the brain, which is one that it, it incrementally adjusts every connection in, in, the, in, the, in the network by a very small amount. So it's a very gradual learning algorithm. And second, that it's operating um, over everything at once in, 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 a, in a multiply connected system. Um, those are very abstract features, um, but uh, it, they're, they're the key ones that we pull to when we, in this paper, create a mathematical framework. Um, and I can sort of illustrate our hypothesis. So, you know, uh, if we go to now going back one, sorry for having this out of order, but um, slide, um, slide five. Remember what we're trying to do is uh, explain in a different way how the the frequency of things in the world might determine the sensitivity to which our visual systems respond to those things in a way that doesn't invoke optimality and, and, and noise and so our hypothesis really just says that well if we assume that learning in the brain is, is very gradual and second that it uh, it uses limited experience effectively so it makes the uh it's um, it makes the best change that it uh, that, you, that you can, um, given that you're learning very gradually, and um, then uh, then perhaps that might lead to this phenomenon that we see, namely that the more frequent things are those to which we're more sensitive and and can detect changes in better. Um, so at this point, I've um, I've done uh, a lot of a lot of the main framing, um, but I've I've invoked like a lot of uh, large uh, frameworks and concepts. So you know, I, this would be a, a great time to interrupt me. Uh, to uh, you know, I, I guess like I ask things more broadly. Uh, after this, I'll I'll talk a little bit about you know, what specific experiments uh, that we ran and the results and our. Um, in, in this paper, there's also like, we did a bunch of math and we have um, some uh, some theoretical results too. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you for um, for the explanation um, so far. It's really interesting. About the frequency, um, I, I, I haven't thought about that before, that basically um, the frequency of basically inputs determines how the inert system kind of um, uh, evolves. 
Um, is that also what you mean that basically the niche we adapt to and the niche of a human is pretty broad mm -hmm. um, it determines basically how the internal or nerd system kind of uh, co-evolves uh, to it so yeah did, did you think or is that varies that a lot i i don't know right now um from like animals from that have very specialized niches um you know that you did you look into that i mean probably it's a mm. little away from from the work but let's say an animal that's mostly visual or um mostly you know underwater um like th is there a huge difference in that frequency perception i guess yeah well, there's, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, that's a great question. And there, there's two, um, so, you know, we can talk about on an evolutionary time scale, uh, as, as you're saying, there's a, there's a niche where an animal typically sees one, one thing or another. And so evolution will, will bake that in. Um, and that um, we didn't, you know, this is, of course, not in this paper, but there's a there's a wide literature around, um, uh, you know, looking at various animals and their sensory systems, and indeed they find sort of exactly what you're you're saying, um, which is that when when we're able to characterize the statistics of those uh, of those inputs of, of of the auditory world, even of the tactile world, um, if if you're able to quantify those statistics uh, as a as a general rule uh you'll you'll find that that uh an aspect of that sensory system evolves to encode that really well um and this has been observed all sorts of animals like in in the in the fly in the in the fruit fly they can see okay what does the fruit fly retina encode really well um and, and tie into the things that they typically see um and it even uh is seen within the same organism in different parts of the visual field like for mice for example they they don't um uh their their eyes don't uh you know move too much their heads aren't that mobile and so the lower half of the visual field is always below the horizon and the upper half of the field is is above and they're using that to um uh, you know scan for aerial predators and, and so on and the two halves of the retina or at least the upper and lower part, I don't know if it's precisely the half, but uh, the upper and lower part of uh, mouse retina uh, respond to the statistics of those two domains differently. Um, and that's an evolutionary um, thing. And, and it, it's not something that any animal would learn in one lifetime. Uh, but I do wanna make a, a distinction between what is ev like what evolution may have found over eons and, and many generations versus what an animal is able to learn in their own lifetime. And that people have also looked at. Um, and that somewhat more relates to the, our study a little bit, which is like, you know, in, in one lifetime, uh, what, what are the principles by which an animal could learn to efficiently encode their own particular uh, and unique input statistics and world? Uh, and we know, excuse me, for sure that this does happen. Um, I think a, a, a relatable example in, in humans is how we um, 
were specialized to detect um, like the vowels and consonants of our mother language, the one that we heard while we were um, very young, um, much better. Um, but we can't even really tell the difference between vowels and consonants uh, in, in very different languages um, if you weren't trained to hear that um, or if you, if you weren't exposed to those, those differences. Um, uh, yeah, uh, there are other experiments that are wild, like ones in which they, uh, uh, <laughs> in the in the in, in the '70s, raised uh, cats in environments where they could only see the world through a, either vertical gratings, which sort of like removed the ability to uh, to see. Uh, continuous horizontal lines or it becomes all broken up um, or they'll raise those cats in um, in environments where they really only see they have these, these horizontal bars so the vertical lines are broken up um, and uh, yeah these these old, old studies report um, that after that uh, after that rearing they uh, they would like the vertical the ones with vertical bars would like bump into chair legs. They wouldn't be able to see vertical objects as well um, and, and vice versa. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just had one more question. So in theory, if we would like, did anyone try it? In theory, if we would have a lot of information about um, a species environment, that is kind of you know very specific could we model um very accurately how their neurosystem works and how it should be structured and things like that i think that hmm. would be so interesting to study so we wouldn't need to you know um if we if we could do that pretty accurately we could make broad assumptions of all kinds of species um, without, you know, getting them and poking in their head or uh, maybe even if we find life somewhere else, we could, um, if we have good modeling, uh, we could, you know, um, model much better how their kind of um, perception system works. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, yeah, um, I love that. Yeah, I would. I would say you wouldn't. Um, you would be able to say. I think with pretty. Yeah, like you would be able to predict what they could perceive. Um, there are always a million ways that biology can create a circuit to achieve a certain goal. So it's it's hard to say exactly how it should be wired up, but at least I should be able to say. Yeah, from that alien from from Mars, um, they're great at detecting changes in. In, in like oranges and reds, um, but like maybe they don't see blues that well um, because there's just not that much of that color on that planet. Yeah, thank you. Um, please, sorry for interrupting so many times and please uh, go ahead. Thank you. Of course, no, no, I'd prefer. Um, okay, yeah, so, um, all right, so there's, Yes, there's, uh, um, all right, so we're, 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 we were wondering first, 
whether, uh, you know, if, if, if learning over one's lifetime um, with something like gradient descent could explain these, these uh, sorts of patterns. And the first way to see that is like, okay, well, we have all of these deep neural networks. They've been trained on images. Why don't we just go and, and, and look at those? And so it's kind of like, you know, we're almost treating these systems, um, we're using the same methods that people in neuroscience would use to understand them. Um, there's, they're like model systems in their, in their own right. Um, sometimes people say, instead of neurophysiology, we can do uh, artophysiology. Um, like artificial physiology. Uh, so this is exactly what we did. We went in and um, when uh, these neural networks are trained on natural images, as many of them are now, it's been a, a, a benchmark for over a decade. Um, and this is what's running in your in your phone, you know, when it detects like that your your face is there, it's, it's using such a neural network. The, uh, what we can, yes, what we'll do is we'll, in the same way that uh, you would show these oriented gradings to humans, we would show these to neural networks. We would go, we'd look inside and see how much does the interior activations change in response to changes in those initial orientations. And uh, indeed we found really similar patterns where at the, uh, free at the horizontal and at the vertical lines, these networks are much more sensitive to changes than at the 45 degree uh, or um, you know 135 degree angles. And so this is kind of shown on uh, on slide eight. Uh, we have one particular network and looking at various layers within it and finding that these layers. Uh, like us, like like animals, are are more um, more sensitive. So, like the the neurons in each of these layers responds uh, to a greater degree, or they the change in their response is much larger when you change the orientation uh, at the at the horizontal and vertical lines. This was really encouraging for us, I think. Um, it's, and it also fits in with a, an exciting and a sort of big body of work right now, pointing to all sorts of similarities between neural networks and humans uh, or animals. There, there are many things that of course aren't the same. Um, they, they, yeah, the, the, the list of dissimilarities between uh, AI systems and, and humans is, is very, very long. But I think it's very exciting the degree to which they're similar because it's it's unexpected and an emergence and it's an an emergent thing in a way that uh, was very difficult for us for you know the research community before I joined it I'm going to call that us <laughs> us humanity but it, you know it was very difficult for us to predict what these types of neural networks would learn and how they would respond to their inputs after being trained on huge data sets. Uh, so we, we put this result on that big pile of similarities. Um, and I think we could have stopped there. Um, but where this paper deepened a little bit for me was to, to, you know, take a look at slide eight and, and ask why, why is this the case? Um, 
what, you know, did we expect this to happen? Because this is a fully observable system, um, we should be able to explain exactly how this emerged in this model system. And that's what we set out to do. Um, uh, and uh, the, uh, there were, you know, a few possibilities could have been the case. It could be that like in, um, you know, in, in this old theory for, uh, for in, from psychophysics and animal sensory neuroscience, this could be an efficient system that's been optimized by some process uh, despite, an, uh, despite some sort of constraint like noise. But that, did, that didn't really check out for this circumstance because neural networks don't have noise and they're not constrained systems in the sense that as information goes through them, there's actually a large expansion in the number of uh, nodes. So it didn't quite make sense to us to treat it as Claude Shannon might have done as a, as a constrained information channel. Instead, uh, we thought something else might be, might be going on. And to this, we, we look to um, a, a different subfield in, in, in deep learning. There's a question about um, why neural networks generalize. That is like, you know, they have a, a, some training examples and they see them, but then, you know, they don't just memorize the labels on those. They sort of figure out the underlying pattern and apply that to new circumstances. Um, so that they, they work into environments or um, maybe they, in the case of like chat GPT, they'll generate text that they've never seen before, but it's sort of uh, an interpolation of everything they've seen in the past. And to explain this phenomenon of generalization, there's this big body of literature describing what could be happening. Um, and there's this one idea that, uh, it's not the, the architecture itself of these networks, but how they are, how they're trained. So it's, it, it, it's gradient descent itself. It's not, it's not some sort of accident that this is the algorithm that we're using to training, to train these networks. Uh, rather, gradient descent has this, this preference baked into it for what neural networks learn first about the world. And the types of tasks that we ask them to learn just happen to coincide with these preferences of gradient descent to learn certain things before others. Uh, and that's that's really the key idea from the second like theoretical half of this paper, which is to say, um, do these inherent preferences of gradient descent in simulations and in, in model systems um, result in systems uh, learning preferentially about things that are more frequent first. And uh, I, I could, you know, long story short, um, say that yes, uh, and, and I have a few slides to have, you know, some, some intuition about this. Uh, if you're interested in the mathematical details, it's, uh, I won't get into that here in this talk. Um, uh, it's not overly complicated. Um, it's it's mainly just an application of linear algebra, <laughs> um, and uh, like and so if you're very familiar with both uh, like uh, you know, linear algebra and calculus, you'll you'll understand. Um, but it would just take too long to go through for for now. 
but I'll, I'll, I'll say at high level, what's happening with gradient descent. Um, uh, so, um, Gradient descent has this interesting property in, in multi-layer networks where uh, it only adjusts uh, pathways that already exist through the, the whole system already. Uh, so in slide nine, there's like a very simple schematic where I have a network and um, it's, a, it's a three layer, very simple schematic network with paths of various weights. And what gradient descent will do is adjust all of the weights along a particular pathway, um, a, proportional to how strong that that pathway already already exists. Um, so, for example, like even if the early weights are quite strong, but I I did some you know some surgery and I severed the the final connections, that pathway wouldn't exist overall any longer, and so no change would happen. Now, at, at high level, that is to say that how much is how much gradient descent learns depends on how much has already been learned. Um, so, on slide ten, there's a schematic that shows that um, the consequences, like the consequence of this fact, which is uh, as, as a function of time, we can ask how much does gradient descent learn uh, learn something, um, and one can imagine various pathways. Uh, so perhaps like as you are exposed to more and more examples, you slowly get better linearly. So every every 10 times you see something, you have you know a, a proportional increase in your performance. Or perhaps uh, maybe when you learn something, you'll quickly get better very quickly, but sort of begin to slowly plateau. Uh, like a, an exponential rise in asymptote. Uh, what gradient descent actually predicts is something that's more like a sigmoidal curve, where in the beginning, you're not really getting any better because you haven't learned anything yet. But as soon as you begin to start learn something about, um, you know, about keep, keeping it vague, about something, <laughs> uh, learn something about something, you'll begin to uh, improve exponentially. And then that becomes uh, an asymptote as, as you converge towards learning. Um, so you get these sigmoidal curves that like S-shaped. And uh, the, the initial learning rate, like how quickly you're initially beginning to learn something, ends up having a really strong effect in this domain. If you start to be learn something a little slower, that exponential rise will begin much later. Uh, and so it looks like you're learning one thing. Um, like if, if you if you learn slightly quicker thing A as opposed to thing B, uh, the sigmoidal learning curve will result in you learning thing A almost to completion before you even start to begin learning thing B. <clears throat> and that uh, in, in slide 11 um, at high level is, is the phenomenon underlying what we see in these neural networks where the, this frequency, the frequency of some input thing, so I put color schematically here, 
uh, like uh, very if you if certain colors are more frequently seen, your initial learning rate will be much higher, and so you'll more quickly get to this exponential rise part of the curve, and learn that color almost, you know, almost totally before you start learning other things. Um, there's uh, uh, you know some asterisks here to this uh, in, in that like it's I'm talking about okay the multiple test technical uh, asterisks but I'm happy to talk more about those in any case uh, uh, because of these various rises if you look at any point in time at the sensitivity you'll see each of these components of the inputs learn to some different degree uh, and those more frequent things things that were learned a little bit more uh, quickly in the beginning, simply by virtue of more exposure, uh, are, are learned uh, more quickly. And so it looks like the sensitivity is much higher at any finite period of time for those frequent things. But this isn't because of some absolute constraint. At in, an infinite training time, if you just keep on learning forever in this, uh, you know, we can create a model that will learn all of the inputs to perfection. So we can create an unconstrained model. And, but at any finite period of time, it will look like it creates, well, it will create an, a, an efficient code in the sense that more uh, frequent things in the inputs are, are better represented. Um, Uh, so this this is like the underlying um, underlying phenomena that you know we can um, uh, I think I think um, I'd actually like to skip slide twelve, which you know we we created a um, well maybe maybe I'll go through it anyways. So in addition to our large neural networks. We can create a very simple, understandable neural network, and um, that's just like a linear matrix learning problem. We have uh, some natural image patches. Uh, ma linear matrix is learning to encode them. And uh, I'm going to go to slide 13, which has a bunch of. Um, we, can, we can stay here for a bit because there's some interesting uh, results here. So the uh, the the degree to which a this, this simple system learns some aspect of the inputs. Uh, so for reasons of mathematical cleanliness, we can ask how well does it learn um, the principal components or, or the directions of, uh, of shared uh, large variance among natural images. So some of these natural, some of these variance directions might be like, you know, the full left of the image patch is black, but the full right of the image patch is white. That's a component of natural images. It's present to some degree on all images um, and it has a very high variance. So it's very different. Um, the, uh, the degree to which the network uh, learns each of those aspects of shared variance relates to their, uh, their, their strength in the inputs. And those things that are learned more frequently uh, are those that have higher strength. Um, and the in, in humans as well, so just below it, we can say that 
you know, the, these sort of sigmoidal learning task dynamics. We do learn them, as, that happens for us as well. <laughs> um, sometimes people call these like aha moments or, you know, moments when you, when you kind of like really understand a task and you get very, very good very quickly. The harder a task is, the later that aha moment will come. Now, before that aha moment comes, you just, you're still learning, but you're just not seeing any, uh, any real improvement yet in, you know, the say success rate of that task. Um, some other things that this framework explains are uh, like how, um, uh, how, how good we get at seeing small changes over time. So on, on the right of this uh, slide 13, uh, on the bottom right, there's this small plot reproduced from older papers showing that as, as human infants and then young children age, they get better and better at being able to observe fine details. It's called acuity, visual acuity. Um, it's specifically like, um, what's the smallest, uh, what's the smallest, um, I guess, uh, like texture I can observe the most, the finest texture, for example, like a, a black and white bar pattern, which is the finest texture I can observe before that texture just blurs out and looks to me like pure gray. And it's another psychophysical measure. It turns out that it gets better and better. We get better and better at seeing that over time. Uh, and it's linear with age up to uh, we're like, like 10 years old nearly uh, before you stop being able to see improvements and how well uh, humans can you know, see these really fine details, uh, which is very interesting because at this point, our eyes are fully mature, like, you know, when, when um, and it's really what explains this slow increase in uh, visual acuity is is your nervous system is is how much your um, your visual system has 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 learned to to encode the world and this theory that we have about gradient descent reproduces uh, those same types of uh, of improvements over time. Uh, without having to invoke uh, this older framework of efficient coding despite noise, which might say that like, well, humans are always optimal, but the amount of noise in your visual system decreases with age. Uh, and I think I'll skip the, uh, the middle column here. Um, and um, yeah, maybe I'll just, uh, uh, you know, conclude at a high level um, before we can, you know, relate this to other things. But um, with slide 15, um, which is, you know, we, we've been using gradient descent as this model learning system, but the message that we ultimately took away from this is that inevitably learning requires a, a tendency to learn one thing over another. Um, this is just a, an inherent, um, problem relating to learning. Um, it's uh, sometimes, you know, people would call this, there's, there's no free lunch in, in learning. You always have to make assumptions in order to be able to learn something at all. Uh, it's very related to the problems of, 
of, of induction and epistemology and, and philosophy, which is that you, you can never know something for sure without making assumptions. Um, and uh, because there's always a way in which a future experience, experience can violate any particular rule that you've built. It's the same thing for learning. If you, if you establish some sort of rule from your previous experience, uh, you have to assume that that rule will apply to something in the future, which is to say that your learning must be, um, if, you, if you have built a successful learning algorithm, the assumptions that it makes must be naturally matched to the types of problems you'll see. So the visual world, you know, we've evolved in the context of this visual world from for eons. And we've evolved learning algorithms that are good uh, at, at learning the types of rules and, and visual systems that will work well. Um, so it's a tendency to learn. Uh, those things are good. Uh, gradient descent, you know, this is one rule that happens to match that, but there are others, and then, you know, there's other ones could also be happening in the brain. Um, now these, so any learning rule has, has these tendencies, necessarily these tendencies accumulate as one learns uh, to shape perception and behavior in the same way that like, a, like er erosion, um, is a particular rule for the slow flow of water, but uh, that particular rule shapes a, a whole landscape. Um, the analogy being that the, the way that we see the world with greater sensitivity to frequent things um, is, is, is the landscape uh, for which uh, our, our learning algorithm you know, has, has sculpted over time. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I'll, I'll conclude the, you know, the main run of things here. Um, but I'm more than happy to stay on for, uh, for a while and, um, talk about, uh, this or any related, uh, to the topics. Thank you so much, Ari. And I think, you know, your work has so many implications from you know, from basic neuroscience, um, of course, to education. <laughs> and mm -hmm. why I'm saying this is, um, you know, if, if that's, you know, the closest model we can get from how we learn as humans, um, one would argue that to stay adaptive in our ever-changing, especially modern world, the broadest, um, exposure of learning you can give children for example the better because if we don't do that we in the future more we could see more tendencies that we see now in social media and this mm -hmm. has also political implications that people just read what they are used to read in a very narrow way and don't understand each other don't even try to see different points of views or to maybe break their own um, assumption of how the world is and what is good or bad, adapting to, you know, to how it's actually changing and, you know, radical views and so on. So 
I think your work has so many implications that we could uh, take advantage of to model how to learn in the future the best way to have kind of a safe democracy, but also for humans to stay adaptive in the future and to kind of, um, you know, stay relevant. Uh, what What do you think? Mm, yeah, yeah, I'm really excited by by that uh, possibility and connection. Um, the, you know, for 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 education and for young children learning, um, especially, I think it's, you know, it, it it doesn't. Luckily, I think the 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 trends in early child education are already a look towards like they. Um, they already do what I would recommend for the large, <laughs> the large part, which is really good. You know, a lot of exposure uh, from early ages, like starting with curriculums of learning things that are uh, easier first. That's something I didn't touch upon, but it does um, can be related in the same uh, mathematical framework. Uh, but you know, I would, I would just say that you know it gives me confidence in in that um, in that direction and confidence. You know, if I were uh, a young parent, which I'm, I'm not, I'm not yet. Um, you know, it would, uh, it would give me, um, or if I, you know, for learning something myself, which of course I, I, I always, always am. Uh, I, I think this points towards a degree of trust that that we should have. That even if we're not understanding something yet, uh, the way that we learn is not, you know, it, it's not immediately apparent. Uh, you're learning progress, but you need to be exposing yourself to something um, to eventually get that aha moment. Um, you shouldn't expect to see immediate gains in the, in, in the beginning for all things. Especially the harder it is, the later you'll see that moment. Uh, sometimes we want to, uh, you know, we, we, we like easy, um, easy learning curves, but it's not always that way. Yeah, exactly. I remember when I first started as a master's student, in the lab in a, uh, you know, relatively now compared to nowadays, relatively bad um, imaging to do electrophysiology. And I thought, who can even see anything on this? Like, yeah. <laughs> and distinguish the cell types, that's ridiculous. Like people imagined. <laughs> and then after a while, I remembered, you know, after like two weeks or so, then it started like, at some point, it just started easier to recognize this. So, you know, whoever did something like this or in biology, drawing different cell structures, um, like in the beginning, it all looks like a huge unorganized mush in the cell. And then you recognize the structures uh, fairly easily after some while of training. So. I don't know if anyone else experienced that. Maybe just my visual system was really not good in that, but that was like the most significant, I guess, ex own experience I had uh, to do that. So that's yeah. why, um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. But I want to open up the questions to Peter, Denise, and Victoria. Please um, unmute yourselves if you have questions. Thank you. Um, Peter? Oh, yeah, go ahead if you have a question. Yeah, I, I think that the way that the present 
language systems or like ChatGPT and AI systems are learning and how humans are learning are quite different because the you can easily show a human something, show them a new way of seeing something and they they can instantly take that on board and see new things because if you help them with that, they can pick out what matters in a completely different way. So the inputs can make sense suddenly and the outputs mm -hmm. can change dramatically very quickly. And as far as I know, there is no way of doing that uh, with uh, the present AI systems, etc. And what I what I think is is like you you were referring to um, animals being adapted to to environments, and that is slow genetic development or evolution in many ways. The advantage that I see humans having over that, if we are going to generalize. That, that is that the human brain is highly programmable. And I would argue that the reason humans are born as unready as they are is that the earlier they can, can get out in the environment and uh, be exposed to whatever environment that their culture has is existing in, the more specific programming can take place for survival in that environment. And that takes place mainly through culture and uh, cultural learning then then on top of that you you can have it much more you can have it much more advanced because that kind of learning and programming is both in indeliberate and invisible to the human itself however you can make that both deliberate and visible and sadly that is a level that is not very widely used if that makes sense so i i I would w comment on w what I've said if if it makes sense mm -hmm. to you, sure. or if it sounds crazy, and uh, if it how you see it linking together with your work and with AI systems, and also Thanks, tell yeah. me if I'm completely crazy. <laughs> no, no, I actually agree with a lot of what you're saying. Um, on the first uh, point, um, I think you're absolutely correct to point out that we have. A human, you know, we humans have, have, have the ability to learn in, in very quick ways uh, and ways that, um, yeah, like if, if I tell you a new fact, you'll, you'll know it, you'll remember it at least for a little while. Uh, that's something that's something like, you know, these language models like ChatGPT, they can't, uh, they can't do, and it, they can't especially do in any sort of like long-term memorable way. Like if I tell it, right now in my computer, like, you know, um, a fact about myself, um, it's, and then you do that on your side, um, it's, it's not going to know. And even if it, uh, you know, the, and, and the reason is because the, um, these training systems, although like my chat, my input is being used to train the system, they're using this very slow incremental algorithm of gradient descent that adjusts all of the weights in the network by a small degree. And excuse me, that's not, um, so yeah, I, I think uh, in order to make sense of this discrepancy, but also the similarities that we observe uh, in some of these systems, and especially like the visual, like aspects of our low level vision, like the one that we're investigating, I think you have to invoke 
the notion that we likely as humans and, and animals have multiple learning systems. And some of them are, are very good at being quick uh, and then, you know, you know, adjusting and consolidating the network to incorporate that new information. Some of them are very slow. Uh, and um, the, if, if anything, this analogy to gradient descent where this whole network is changed by a very small degree, you know, that, that's, that's something I, you know, it's much more akin to perceptual learning to be to slowly being able to observe objects. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to be able to, uh, like, you know, the counter example to this learning effect is that as the story Katarina was saying, like, if someone just says, you know, like it points to, uh, in a, in a new domain, like if you're learning to see cell types or like a, a radiologist is learning to, uh, read x-rays. Um, it takes many tries and it's a slow process. And even if someone says, this is a fracture here, like, do you see it? Like, okay, yeah, now I see it. It doesn't make them necessarily, um, like it's, it's, you know, it's not just that one experience and suddenly they're, 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 they're really good. Rather it's this accumulated long experience. Um, so probably if, if this single framework, you know, explains anything, it's mostly perceptual learning, um, and I, I, I agree that we probably have, if, if, if anything, you know, multiple learning systems. Um, and uh, again, more broadly, I think it's a really unclear in, in neuroscience to what extent gradient descent is, you know, where in which areas of the brain, that's the right way to think about what's happening. Um, and, uh, you know, it, to, to what degree is it happening at, at all? Um, so still, it, it's, it's, it's another area where, as we look to these modern AI systems, there are some, some, some interesting similarities that we didn't expect, but there remain to be, you know, really large differences in, um, and, and how they work and how they function. Um, yeah, my, my only comment to, to what you're saying is that I would not refer to it as facts if what I've been playing around with and I have really good reasons for saying what I'm saying is if you if I help you see another model or help your brain because it's not you really that if the brain sees it and and understands it the only way that you will forget that is serious brain damage or death and uh, short of that your brain will only put that aside if it's given a better model and that has very much to do with surviving and thriving but anyway uh, thank you very very much i i really appreciate it. it it gives me an insight into other ways of looking at something that i've looked at quite, very very much so thank you very much mm, thank you yeah thank you for those questions and that discussion that was uh, really interesting uh, and uh, Denise uh, and Victoria, do you have any questions? I know Victoria has also in the background work going on, so so I'm not sure she's listening, but uh, if she can answer. But uh, Denise, I wanted to give you an opportunity before I I ask another question. Thank you. 
Thanks, Katerina. I, um, I joined late, so I wish I had a great question, um, but I don't at this time. So thanks for, thanks for being here, Ari. Thanks, Katerina and Victoria for hosting and uh, looking forward to more talks. Yeah, um, so um, my question was about um, what do you think um, would maybe um, improve further the eye from your perspective and based on the study, when I think about um, the example you mentioned, you know, when you say something to a human, the human can remember it um, at least for a while um, immediately. And um, I would say it has, you know, there are different assumptions, but uh, it's probably has to do with priming, uh, using different uh, neuromodulators um, that kind of enhance the short-term memory um, effect, mm. like in the cell would be type of an upstate phase uh, that kind of uh, during that time enhances mm, you know, the recording basically of that event. And um, I know there is already a reward system and things like that, but what do you think we should, or not we, because I'm, I'm not doing that research, but um, one should impl implement in order to have that kind of immediate effect, or would it even be helpful or would it overwhelm the system basically? if we would do it in a human-like way? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, as, as um, like the, the project that I talked about here represents, uh, represents work, you know, I, you know, in understanding gradient descent and how it changes networks, you can see a double-edged sword. You can see how, you know, how it might be good, what sort of, helpful things that embodies, but also as the previous question pointed to, you know, what, what drawbacks does it have? And the ability to learn things quickly is one drawback. And, and there are others as well that I didn't um, mention here, like, um, for example, like uh, interference is a big problem in if you just use gradient descent. Um, if you learn one thing and then you switch over to learning something else, um, those changes tend to be overwritten and that's pointing to another big difference between how how we learn and, and how maybe just gradient descent and a big unstructured network learns. So, you know, looking towards building better artificial intelligence systems, what researchers could do to draw inspiration from uh, from the way we learn is uh, is. Uh, I mean, yeah, is, is to to address these problems, and I think that your suggestions, like you know, how it, how attention focuses uh, learning, it gates learning, and it targets learning to only specific areas. That's that's something that you know it's is is divergent from what how AI systems are trained today, and there's great evidence that that's how we learn and how animal animals or you know mammals learn and. Um, I, I anticipate that changes like that are are would not only be helpful for AI, but are probably necessary uh, to you know, not to to overcome the obstacles that face them today. Yeah, I have one follow up 
a comment slash question and then I wanted to give if you still have time the opportunity for Steve that joined the stage to ask a question. Um, we we learned last week from a from a speaker that came here, which was really interesting that we didn't know before um, from cell um, molecular biology that you know we can cells can use the genetic code differently to make different cell types and so on. But the interesting part was that they found a really big redundancy in even how the same cell type, let's say two liver cells, two uh, kidney cells and so on, um, like that individual cell types in, in the same place have a redundancy, a pretty big one, how they use the genetic code to, to get to the same outcome. And we knew this kind of a little bit from neuroscience on our on a higher scale, um, but I wasn't aware that um, this is also now being recorded on a very deep molecular level. So is this sort of redundancy implemented in AI? And if not, do you think it would be, you know, I, I know we, we are probably speculating a lot, but, um, you know, would that also, because I feel like it's a very main characteristic of like living adaptive beings to have this redundancy, but coming up with you know, really good results and it kind of builds resiliency and probably also adaptability. Hmm. Yeah, I would say yes and no. Yes in that, you know, there's um, a, a large neural network. It's of course pretty hard to look into these and see how they're working because everything is shared um, across a large degree of of artificial nodes and neurons in that network. Um, learning even simple tasks, that's it's spread among millions of connections. And so to some degree, yes, and yes, redundancy in that there are, you know, many, you could, you could target or you could ablate a, a node in these large networks and nothing would really happen. Like it would maybe, it would sort of change the output a little bit, but it's it's robust to that sort of, you know, single, single edge deletion. Um, unlike, say, a calculator or like a you know transistor-based system, there are some really crucial connections there that if you if you cut the whole thing would stop. Um, but on the other hand, redundancy also makes me think of modularity, where a single system, um, a single a module for computation, might be used over and over again in different contexts, um, which is um, sort of something we see um, like it in in like cellular uh, transcription, for example, there's, uh, you know, there's all sorts of cellular processes that use the same materials for, uh, for innumerable functions. And in the types of artificial neural networks that we have today, uh, that sort of uh, adaptable reuse of systems is not is not really done uh, it's not you know it's not how they work and, and some people speculate that that's a major reason that 
they don't uh, think and uh, and act like humans in certain ways. Um, like if you have a um, like like procedural and repetitive application of of abstract rules um, is something more like uh, a symbol processing system, and uh, it you know has strengths that are clear failures of, of the ter current types of large neural networks. Yeah. yeah, thank you for uh, for that answer. And um, it's, it's really interesting. But I want to give uh, Steve welcome. Uh, please ask your question. Thanks for waiting so patiently. Yeah, I, thanks for uh, bringing me on stage. So I looked at um, um, so one of your conclusion is that the uh, learning algorithm, the uh, efficient learning algorithm leads to the, the, the kind of coding. And um, uh, particularly, um, it seems that you mentioned the, especially the, uh, the neural network learning algorithm, the gradient descent um, is the, uh, played the, the probably the most important role here. Uh, what I want to say uh, is, uh, if you look at the, if, um, um, I'm not sure you look at the other linear algorithms. So if, um, I'm not sure the, the gradient descent, uh, um, you know, maybe it's independent of the gradient descent. That is the main, mm -hmm one I want to mention and uh, and uh, so that can probably can be verified by looking at other algorithms uh, but also outside of the any linear algorithm you know just a long linear algorithm like the Hoffman coding for example it looks like the Hoffman coding um, you know seems to have the most of the properties you mentioned for example the one of the picture you mentioned the most frequent sense will be learned the first. Uh, if you look at the Hoffman coding, uh, you know, it's a deterministic, uh, you know, from uh, engineers, the early days people did it. There's no, there's no learning there. It seems that does exactly that as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so I'm not sure, you know, maybe, uh, also, you know, uh, is my question uh, clear if you yeah. want to clarify anything? No, no, that's great. Um, yeah, so uh, two questions there. And I think, you know, we, yes, we only studied gradient descent. I am also very curious to know the answer to that same question. What other learning algorithms uh, have this property? And how generally, how general might we be able to, to say something? It certainly wouldn't be all learning algorithms. Um, as we know, you know, all learning algorithms have a certain preference to learn some things about the inputs first before others, and they um, the, those preferences will dictate what they're good at learning. Uh, and you know, something can't be good at all possible problems. So there's probably some small range or subset of uh, of 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 problems um, or 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 of you know of learning algorithms, and it would be I'd love to know like what what defines that subset. Um, and, uh, you know, crucially, like, does it include something that maybe the brain is doing? 
the so I you know I don't know that's the first <laughs> answer to the first question I'd love to know the to the second question um in in relation to something like a like a Hoffman code uh, yes like uh, I think that that's a uh, that's an on point observation um and it's like um that is an example of of an, of an efficient code for sure um in the presence of um a, some constraints so like when you're using a Huffman code maybe you 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 only have a certain number of bits that you're able to send over and so that's that constraint and and we can talk about you know what are the what are the optimal codes and and, and maybe you know we, it's hard to know the optimal code but information theorists have come up with a, a large number of of great compressionary algorithms that today underline information technology. Uh, and those, those would absolutely have this general property that the more frequent things are, um, are encoded better. So in information theory sense, that's usually means like using a smaller number of bits. Um, and uh, it's, um, the so I, I would place this in sort of one of two two camps or two piles of theories that can explain why things have sort of systems the sort of you know sensitivity uh, profiles in proportion to frequency. One is the efficient codes using information theory like the Hoffman code, um, but learning algorithms may be a different thing. Where you know it's like maybe the maybe the that information channel isn't constrained at all. So you don't, the nervous system, but the brain doesn't need to use fewer bits. Um, and it's, it just happened to have learned uh, more, you know, gradually or using some algorithm that preferentially learned things first. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that really exposes like the central, um, paradigm, uh, the, the comparison between paradigms here that's at the heart of the paper. Great, thank you. I would love to, you know, connect with you uh, offline. Uh, thanks a lot for that. Thanks, send me a message, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you so much. Um, and yeah, also, I can connect both of you through email if you if you want, just um, send me an um, email Steve and then uh, yeah I'll, I'll make the connection and um, yeah I wanted to check if anyone has some last questions we've been going on for an hour and a half now almost or our last comments please um, share in the chat or or raise your hand really quick uh, but in the meantime I really um, think that Ari like, first of all, thank you so much for sharing the time and explaining your work uh, so thank well. Thank you, yeah, for the invitation. It's been uh, fun. As I said, I think it has so many implications from learning how we should learn to, uh, yeah, as I said, I think it argues for um, a broad education, but I think also to, to, to make like the, the best, like for kids that they won't get frustrated, right? With learning and maybe have a good experience 
for the future because I think we will need to keep learning all of our lives. So to kind of adapt to their specific a preference of learning of different subjects. I think, you know, your model maybe would argue for that too. So that there is not a long frustration time. You know, we've kind of known that there are different ways of learning for different people. You know, there are more audio people, visual. Some people have to, especially as kids, move around a lot uh, while learning. I know that the Waldorf school system my oldest son was in in Germany for a while hmm. uh, had that approach like they they checked with the they observed the children for a while and then my son was one of the kids that was supposed to walk around while learning vocabulary for a different language for example uh, and it worked really well like he was supposed to work walk around and then um, you know, repeat the words of the new vocabulary. And so, yeah, I think it's really interesting. And uh, I, I wish you all the best for your work because it's, I think it's really important. And uh, yeah, for all of us. So uh, thank you and congratulations. And I look right. forward to follow your work. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, and thanks everyone for coming and uh, participating. It's always way more interesting discussion as many people ask questions and share their thoughts. Uh, if you like discussions like this, uh, follow the club. The, the next session will be with Dr. Cole um, about mitochondria clusters and interneuron uh, myelination. So basically, you can, it like positively correlates the concentration of mitochondria and the myelination um, uh, density or amount in, uh, in interneurons, which is really interesting. And um, it, it's really important to have good myelination <laughs> in your life. <laughs> so um, yeah, I hope I hear you all back soon. And thank you, Ari, again. Enjoy the rest of your day. and. I hope we'll hear you one day again and, and you, you share with us updates. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Thanks everyone, thank you, bye.